0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to ten years at Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that
0: door; you was a number. and the inmates understood that. You out there, period in here just lay down <laughs>
1: Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe I was still with them and to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a,
0: an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back that stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, i gave give it back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee, pretty quick they'd have a plan to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way
2: out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name's Anthony. I'm talking to Skye down in Texas. How you doing, Sky?
0: Oh, I'm fine. School's about to start. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's I think yeah, a lot of people are feeling that way. By the time you're listening to this, school has been rolling for yeah. a week or two and yeah. uh hope it's going well. Hope everybody's being safe and uh enjoying yeah. being back in the classroom or at least via Zoom depending on where
1: you're at.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this year is I think not at all what we expected it to be. So, good luck to everyone. <laughs>
2: I feel like I got in, like, a lot of socializing, a lot of fun this summer, as much as I could, so...
0: Yeah. Anyway, is it still smoky up there?
2: Well, this is, like, August 19th, and the wind blew it all out yesterday, so, you know... We we yes. might have a day or two where it's not smoky. I'm not sure when this <laughs> podcast episode comes out if it's going to be smoky right. or not, but Seriously. we'll see. Seriously, I know. Yeah. I
0: accidentally went running that week that it was, like, really super smoky, and I, like, gave myself a lung infection. So don't do that, gang. Like,
2: don't,
0: don't be outside. <laughs> don't be dumb <laughs> like me because I'm yeah. insistent on being dumb. Anyway. No. Wait, anyway, what do we have let's today? Let's talk Sky? about let's talk about some Idaho history that isn't um, about fires. So today I am talking about number one, one, two, three, five, Claire Johnson Lopez. This is a pretty straightforward episode. So sources are her inmate file. Idaho Daily Statesman articles, ancestry.com records, NezPurce.org, nezperscultural.org, the Idaho State Historical Society reference series and Wikipedia. So, Claire Johnson Lopez was born Claire Johnson on January 19th, 1931 in Lapway, Idaho on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation. Her parents were Willie Johnson and Lucy Hill and both parents were actually enrolled members of the Nez Perce Indian Tribe. She was the sixth of at least nine children Dorothy, Ernestine, Jasper, Vera, Rachel, then Claire, Annabelle, Barbara, and Margaret. Now, Ernestine, Jasper, Vera, and Annabelle all died before they reached the age of twelve. Um oh, which so it's is super sad. Um and you know, unfortunately that are those those are conditions of the early twentieth century and I think as well um as on, on the reservation where disease often ran rampant and things like that. Later in life, she uh, Claire does actually receive letters from a sister named Faye, but I couldn't actually find any records of Faye, so I'm not sure sort of what the situation there. Like, I'm sure that it's her sister, I just don't know, like... When she was born, if it's a nickname for like one of her other sisters, I don't really know. But I couldn't find, to be fair. So I found all of her siblings through Indian census rolls that were taken, and those only went up to about 1934. So if she had, if there was a sister who was born after Margaret and it was past those years, or maybe even been through 36, if she was born after that, then they didn't have those census records anymore. I don't really know much else about Claire's early life. I know she completed ninth grade at Lapway, Idaho, and she did uh, officially drop out in tenth grade. In the late 1940s, early 1950s, I couldn't find a record to figure out what date she married a man named Edward or Ed Mitchell. And soon after their marriage, they moved to Portland, or they were in Portland, I should say. I don't know if they were married in Oregon, or if they were married in Idaho or Washington. But regardless, they do move to Portland, and their son Leland was born July eighteenth, nineteen fifty, in Portland. And then, about two years later, their daughter Marta was born on March twenty-seventh, nineteen fifty-two. Now, it is possible that they were not married at all, and it was a uh, could have been a common common law situation it could also just be one of those I, I feel like the more I dig into these I think there are situations where they may not actually be married but they say that they are to follow sort of norms at the time it is also possible that they were divorced before Marta was born and that's I say that because I actually found a marriage record of ed from Multnomah County Oregon from May 15th 1952 which is only two months after Marta was born So I don't, again, I don't know what the situation is there. He had married a woman named Marguerite Penny, who was only 18, whereas Claire was 21. He did state that this was his second marriage, but he stated that he was widowed. So if he states it's a second marriage, it does seem to indicate that he and Claire were actually married, but we know that Claire is not dead. So very weird, sort of complicated situation in that regard. So we know, obviously, that Claire isn't married. We have records of her but also we know she was living in Washington with her children at the time and um, by the time I find her she actually had changed her last name back to Johnson from Mitchell she had gone by Claire Mitchell for a little bit but she changed her name back and on April 4th 1954 she was actually arrested under the name Claire Johnson in Tacoma Washington for disorderly conduct and an investigation for a disorderly house which usually means that the police investigated her for being a sex worker The investigation must have been dismissed. There doesn't seem to be a sentence or a punishment attached to this arrest. I think it was just at least an investigation. But about seven months later, on November 19th, 1954, she was arrested in Tacoma, this time for grand larceny. Again, I couldn't find a punishment or a sentence, so I'm not really sure what came of that. If she was sentenced to some sort of jail time, it probably was really short on April, and and so I think she actually returned to her family. And sadly, on April 19th, 1955, Marta died after suffering from whooping cough for over a week. Marta died in Lapway. And so it's unclear if Claire had moved back to Lapway after her arrests in Tacoma or if she had left her kids with family there. But regardless, that is where Marta passed away. I think it seems as if that Claire herself was in Lapway, because if records I found are correct, the second of Claire's sons, whose name was Roberto Lopez, was born on July 8th, 1955. That's only four months after Marta's death. So it seems that Claire may have moved back and sort of tried to straighten out her life a little bit, because this would indicate that by July 1955, she was married for a second time. But I have scoured records, I have looked, I have searched every possible name, I have searched for Roberto himself to try to find clues, I have not found any records that indicate what her husband's name was or when they got married. Again, because of the timing of of her son's birth, it would seem to indicate they were married before the death of Marta, but I just, I really, I really don't know. Then we lose track of her until the 1960s. By the end of 1961, she had returned to Washington State, where she was arrested in Spokane on a drunk charge and was given a five-day suspended sentence. And then by the beginning of 1963, she had returned to Idaho. This time she was in Lewiston. And there, she was arrested for vagrancy in February 1963, and she was given a 30-day jail sentence for that. So, Lewiston is where we are. our story takes place today. The crime takes place. So, um, let's get a little bit into Lewiston. So, I talked a little bit about Lewiston history in episode zero. like our very, very, very first episode. I talked about it in conjunction with the founding of the Idaho Territory and then, of course, the state. And so, I will get into that a little bit more again, sort of as a refresher, since it's been two years, actually, since I really talked about Lewiston. So, the Area was home to the Nez Perce peoples for nearly 12,000 years. They called themselves the nimipu which means the people. And of course, it is the French fur traders in the late 18th century who named them the Nez Perce, which means pierced nose in French. Now, I learned that actually they used the term the traders used the term Nez Perce interchangeably with those who currently claim the Nez Perce name and the Chinook peoples. And It's actually only the Chinook peoples who actually pierced their noses. The Nez Perce people did not actually do that very often. And so prior to contact with Europeans, the hunting and fishing territory of the Nez Perce was about 17 million acres from the Cascades in the west to the Bitterroot Mountains in the east. And of course, uh, sort of the most famous uh, exploration to come through uh, was the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1805. And the Nez Perce actually provided the explorers with fresh horses, dried meat, and fish for their move west. And then as the expedition was heading back east after they reached the Pacific Ocean, the explorers actually stayed with the Nez Perce for well over a month. So they were friendly to the Lewis and Clark expedition and actually quite uh, integral to their survival, especially uh, crossing the Rocky Mountains. In 18. 55, the Nez Perce, along with the Cayuse, Umatilla, Walla Walla, and Yakima tribes, they all participated in what was called the Walla Walla Council. And all this means is that they met together and they all signed several treaties that codified constitutional relationships between the people living on the Nez Perce, Umatilla, and Yakima reservations. So basically, they they met together and they looked at the land and, and sort of provided different portions of land to sort of each tribe on, based on the reservations that they had that the U.S. government had set out for them. And actually, during this Walla Walla Council, the Nez Perce actually got a larger portion of land than they had before. Then, in the late 19th century, the Nez Perce actually split into two groups. And one of the groups accepted a sort of coerced relocation to a reservation, and then the other group who refused to give up their land in Washington and Oregon. So, in early 1877, there was a treaty signed by those who were willing to go to the reservation, and then on June 5th, 1877, the non-treaty Nez Perce leaders led 750 men, women, and children on a flight to try to reach a peaceful sanctuary, first with the Crow people who refused to help them, and then in the camp of the Lakota Chief Sitting Bull in Canada. Now, During this flight, nearly 2,000 U.S. soldiers pursued the Nez Perce, resulting in 18 different skirmishes and battles between 250 Nez Perce warriors and the soldiers, and these battles resulted in over 200 deaths, including 100 Nez Perce men, women, and children. During all of this, you know, after it was over, the majority of the remaining Nez Perce were actually forced to surrender on October fifth, eighteen seventy-seven, and this whole event is known as the Flight of the Nez Perce. And the route that those Nez Perce peoples took is preserved by the Nez Perce National Historic Trail. And the the current Nez Perce Reservation is in North Central Idaho. It's about seven hundred seventy thousand acres, and there's about 3,500 citizens, and it is actually headquartered in Lapway, which is where Claire was born. The Nez Perce Tribe is very involved with preserving and maintaining their culture and their land, and I really, really recommend visiting nezpercecultural.org. This is the official website of the Nez Perce Tribe's cultural resource program, which explains who they are, what their mission is, and what projects they're working on. It's a very, very cool website, and if you can donate, if you want to donate, you can do it on that site as well. So, as I mentioned, the Lewis and Clark expedition actually passed through Lewiston in 1805 as they headed west, and then as they headed back east, they passed through in 1806. And European settlers slowly began moving to the area, but Lewiston itself was not founded until 1861 in the midst of a gold rush that began in 1860, just northwest of Lewiston. And as far as I know, it is called Lewiston after Meriwether Lewis, and actually just across the river and the Idaho-Washington boundary is Clarkston, Washington, presumably named after William Clark. So we have Lewiston, Idaho, and Clarkston, Washington. Then, on March 4th, 1863, Congress established the Territory of Idaho, and uh, they established that provided that the first territorial legislature select a permanent capital lewiston had been growing since its founding and a majority of the territorial population was actually centered around that area so william henson wallace who was the first territorial governor thought lewiston was a logical place to establish his office as wallace himself actually had a a home in the puget sound in washington and so he thought lewiston is pretty close to this home let's do it in lewiston so he summoned the territorial legislature to lewiston in december 1863 Now, interestingly, the legislature never officially named it the territorial capital. So Lewiston remained the temporary seat of the territorial government through 1864. And while all of this is happening, the population in southern Idaho is quickly outpacing the population in northern Idaho. The first territorial census in 1863 showed how much population had shifted toward mines in the south with a gold rush centered near Boise and Idaho City. So we're starting to get a little bit of tension because in the 1864 legislative session, Northern territorial legislatures wanted to cut out the Southern part of the territory and include Eastern Washington as a different territory. And then they could keep the territorial capital there in Lewiston. Southern legislatures with their growing population wanted to remain a part of Idaho. And so they defeated the Northern proposal because they had the majority in number and officially established Boise as the territorial capital. The legislatures in Lewiston and the people in Lewiston were very upset by the fact that these sort of uh, southern legislatures were able to come in and claim majority and said, we don't care what you guys want. We're making our territorial capital in Boise. So Lewiston lawyers went to court to fight the move, claiming that the entire legislative session was illegal because there was some question as to the day that the legislature was supposed to convene. So during the first session, that very first session, in 1864-1863 the legislature had passed some conflicting laws one law said that the new session would convene on November 14th 1864 but another one that they passed said that they would meet on January 1st 1865 so they're trying to say that Well, we, you know, there were some sort of conflicting laws as to when this was supposed to start. And so I think they were trying to argue that if they did it on November, you could look to this law about January 1st, 1865 and say, well, it wasn't supposed to start until then. And so that's basically what they were trying to do is like, that's illegal. You can't do that. You weren't even supposed to be meeting then. So in the middle of the night, as things were in the midst of the courts, Caleb Lyon, who was the territorial governor, fled from the state to avoid the ire of people in Lewiston who wanted to keep the capital there. Now, I did say in the original episode that he had actually himself taken the territorial seal and archives. But actually what I read on the the reference series on the State Historical Society website was that it was actually supposedly other pro-Boise legislators who tried to steal the territorial seal and archives to move them to Boise. And they, they this I don't know if it was a rumor or if they had sort of done it enough and not gotten away with it. They did it so much that the Lewiston legislators actually placed people there to guard them. Now, a Lewiston probate judge decided that the decision to move the capital to Boise had, in fact, been an illegal one, but a territorial Supreme Court had not yet been set up because a territorial capital had not been formally fixed. So over the next few months, Idaho's government and the capital are just completely in flux. So finally, the territorial secretary, C. Dewitt Smith, moved the archives and the seal to Boise in April 1865. In due course, the Territorial Supreme Court upheld the legality of the second legislative session, meaning that Boise had been officially the territorial capital since December 24th, 1864. After the capital debacle, they, they were able to establish the Lewiston Normal School, now Lewis Clark State College, which was established in 1893. And actually, Lewiston was the site of the first public school in the territory in 1862. Now, Stephen Branting, who we had on one of our Stool Pigeon Saturday episodes last season, has written extensively about the history of Lewiston. So feel free to check out any of his books. I think, do we sell one at the gift shop?
2: We do. Yeah. Um, Wicked Lewiston, actually. Mm -hmm.
0: So if you want to know about sort of the less than savory uh, events in Lewiston history, feel free to check that out. So in the 2019 Population estimate the Lewiston population was about 32,788. But in 1960, when Claire was in Lewiston, the population was only 12,691. So back to Claire. Claire was released from the Nez Perce County Jail in the first week of March 1963. Then, about a week later, in March 1963, she was arrested in Lewiston for forgery. Now, not much is known actually about the specifics of her crime her intake form reads quote our information to the effect that this woman was in the midst of a drinking spree at the time this forgery was accomplished however she did not deny having an understanding of what she was doing at the time and quote and you know it really isn't unreasonable to think that she was in the middle of a drinking spree when she committed this crime because we do know she was arrested for drunkenness 2 years earlier um yeah. Now, unfortunately, we actually don't have a lot of Claire's own words in her file. And so we just don't really know if she said anything about the crime sort of on her own behalf. She must have, you know, believed that she had done it and and deserved to serve time for it because she pleaded guilty to forgery. She entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on March 12th. 1963 to serve a 3-year sentence which actually is very different normally a forgery charge usually gets a 1 to 14 year sentence. So interestingly they sentenced her to 3 which is actually pretty unusual.
2: Yeah. And was so, it a flat 3 years like
0: a Flat 3 years, sentenced 3 years. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't like a 1 to 14, it was just 3 years flat. Huh. So her intake form, she is 32 years old, height 62 and a half inches. So she's about five foot two, weight 118 pounds, eyes brown, hair black, complexion brown indian occupation cook waitress housewife also drives trucks and tractors she listed her marital status as separated with three children it says she was married and divorced once one child by first marriage two children by second marriage now i did forget to mention she did have a daughter with lopez her husband whose last name was lopez she had a daughter nina lopez and the reason i don't have her in my outline and sort of order of where she was born is because i actually could not ever find anything Thing about her in uh oh. Ancestry Records. And so I actually only found that name in Claire's obituary. So she does have a daughter as well. So her Bertillion, there's a lot of scars. If you like at first glance, you're like, holy cow, there's a lot that she's got. But it's really mostly scars. She's got some on her forehead, lots all over her face, actually. She has um it says that she has no upper teeth, and her lower teeth are bad. She has brown birthmarks on two different places on her face. She has a surgery scar on her stomach. She's got several scars on her knees and her legs. But that's really, that's it. There's nothing, like, there's no tattoos or or anything like that. Mm. So when Claire entered the state penitentiary, there were actually only six other women in the women's ward. Now, interestingly, two of the women were from Nez Perce County entered for forgery or issuing a check without funds. And they were number 11233, Estella Wilson, who was in for the check without funds, and then number 11234, Elizabeth Grant, who was in for forgery. Now, if you remember, her, Claire's number, is 11235. So she and Elizabeth Grant and Estella Wilson all came in on the exact same day of very, very similar crimes. All three of them were also Native American women which is, seems like a huge coincidence, and all three of them admitted to being under the influence of alcohol when they committed their crimes, which is another interesting coincidence. So originally, when I did the research, I thought maybe they had all done it together, but Elizabeth especially, I thought because they came in and they were both in for forgery, I thought they especially had done it together. But Elizabeth has, like, very specific details of her crimes, and nowhere in either of the files does it mention that they had collaborated or done it together. It's just, like, the most massive coincidence that all three of these women, who were Native American women from Nez Perce in for check related crimes, all came in at the same time.
2: Yeah, they were probably transported together and, like, mm-hmm. and processed mm-hmm. r- just Right, simultaneously.
0: Mm hmm So, though she entered with only six women, which actually, once you include her and the other two women who came in on that same day, there were nine women total when they were all there, 14 other women actually entered while she was there however the the turnover was fairly quick for many of these female inmates this was a spate in which like forgery or like issuing a check without funds was super common and so especially if they were first offenders they kind of got them in and got them out so there were actually only 11 women in the prison by the time she left but still that's a pretty full women's ward.
2: yeah for sure
0: so like many of our women claire had a fairly uneventful stay in the women's ward now there is one exception on april 3rd 1964 which is over a year into her sentence she was removed to the sheriff's custody at the ada county jail for quote security reasons now she was not the only other female inmate to be removed the other one her name was dorothy cox and i covered her in season one episode four and I don't know if you remember, but in that episode, I say she got removed, and I don't know why. Huh. But I found out why.
2: You solved the mystery. I
0: solved the mystery, and this is actually because I finally listened to some oral histories that I should have been listening to all along. And so the uh, and again, we only have a few, so I I it's not like I'm often missing things, but. What I found was in the oral history we have for matron, Lulu Rowan. She actually talks about this. And so we'll listen to this clip.
1: And it was interesting because these girls, they had all different walks of life. One girl had a restaurant. She and her husband ran a restaurant up in Los And uh, most of these girls had bad chicks who were chick writers. And this one girl's name was Claire. Well, little Dorothy the Mexican girl, and Claire became very good friends. And then we had another lady who came here whose name was Dorothy, Dorothy Cox. And she wrote a bad check, on. And uh, she was from California. So she and Claire caused problems. And uh, one time, because of the, and I can't remember exactly what the problem was, but it was causing dissent among the rest of the inmates. And so
0: uh, Mr
1: Clapp had Claire come over and she told him what was going on and then Dorothy came over and he told Claire they said, Well, I think for the betterment for the good of the ward, I'll send you down to the county He Told Dorothy the same thing. And I I didn't take them I I know somebody one one of the one of the, wards, one of the men with with and they were handcuffed, and uh, we took them down to the county jail, and they were put in what they call a ruler, That just that cage, just a cage with a slot a place for excrement to go down, just a place where they could sit over it. And that's it. And they were in, they were put in handcuffs, kind of and they had nothing but just a little black mat to lay on. In other words, you see, it was called a brooder because nobody ever came into that room except to bring them to dinner, bring them their food, and they were together in there. Yeah, they were together. But they were just like that. They were just they were just the best of friends. But when they came, they were there for about four months, but they weren't in that solitary confinement, but about a month and a half, two months. And then they were put in cells. And I took them things like their, their toothbrush, and their hygiene, things for hygiene. And uh, check up things to do, things like that. But uh, he still felt it was the good of the war. they stayed and they were there about four months. when they came
0: back, it was good. It never caused any more problems. So yeah, so it does, she doesn't say like what it was they were doing, but they were basically like stirring up the other inmates.
2: Um, oh, that's a great oral history. Yeah, nice. I was.
0: Yeah, I was like, wait a minute, this is important. So anyway. <laughs> After this being sent to the Ada County Jail on June 26, 1964, Claire wrote a letter to Warden Clapp and uh, asking to return to the women's ward. And it says, quote, Dear Mr. Clapp, I should like to come back out to the institution and I promise that I will conform to all rules and regulations set up by the Board of Corrections. My only interest is to get my time done and obtain a final release, end quote. And so she was returned to the women's ward on June 30th, 1964. Uh, Sadly, in January 1964, before she had been sent to the Ada County Jail, she had stated her desire to appear before the Board of Pardons in the April 1964 session to request a final release, but obviously her case was not considered in the April session because she was in the Ada County Jail. So, we also have records of those who wrote her while she was in prison. Now, interestingly, we don't have any record of letters from her husband or her children. She mostly wrote to her sisters, Donna and Faye, and a handful of friends. And so, it is safe to say that after this experience in the Ada County Jail, she was on her best behavior, and so by August 1964, it's, you know, less than two months after she was returned, she was well enough behaved that the Board of Pardons placed her up for consideration in the October meeting, and she was granted a final discharge subject to good behavior on October 7th, 1964, and she was released from the Idaho State Penitentiary on October 14, 1964. She served one year, seven months, and two days of a three-year sentence. So, as far as I can tell, she returned to Lapway, where she lived out the rest of her life. And matron Lulu Rowan actually might have some more information that I wasn't able to find.
1: And Clara went back up to, to Lewiston, and uh, she said if her husband had been cheating on, she was not to kill him. And she got to a big fight with him, and she started But this was over in Washington. Last I heard she was working. So there were them, like I say, it was
0: nice people. Was that so I couldn't find any record of this alleged stabbing, but Rowan probably would have been updated on like further incarcerations. So that may have happened. And the next record that I found, unfortunately, is her obituary. And Claire Johnson Lopez died on June 7th, 1979 at a hospital in Lewiston, Idaho. She was only 49 years old, indicating it was probably some kind of illness or accident that caused her death. She was survived by her father, her two sons, Leland and Roberto, a daughter, Nina Lopez. And as I said, I couldn't find any record of her and a foster son named David Johnson. And And I don't know the circumstances of her fostering a son. She was pretty young. It's quite possible that this son was pretty young as well. But again, I, I just don't know the circumstances behind that. And Claire is buried at the Webb Indian Cemetery near Lapway. And, uh... That is our number 11235, Claire Johnson Lopez.
2: Wow. She had a somewhat interesting incarceration that we don't really know a lot of the details about for mm-hmm.
0: I mean we do have that being sent to the jail, which is yeah. kind of a, a unique the only time that, that I ever saw that happening besides was Dorothy, and it looks like they is cause they were, you know, doing stuff together. So
2: Interesting. Well that's works, guy. Thank
0: you. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is
1: celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 storytelling program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair, and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973.
0: Stay tuned. All right, well, I hear that you have quite the story to tell us today.
2: This story has aged me in researching it. It's all I can say. So I am covering H.M. St. Cyr, number 958, and my sources are the Idaho Daily Statesman, the Library of Congress chronicling America, newspaper.com, his inmate file from the Idaho State Archives, a findagrave.com memorial to Laurent du Gouvion St. Cyr, GLO Surveyor Personal Notes by Jerry Olson of Olson Engineering Incorporated, A 1924 issue of the Locomotive Engineer's Journal, Volume 58, which I found digitized online. Visit mccall.org, Roadside History page. Founding of McCall, Idaho by Frank P. Rowland. An article on payettecounty.info by Ron Marlowe titled, Thunder Mountain a WesternMiningHistory.com article on Thunder Mountain that included text from Merle Wells' 1983 publication, Gold Camps in Silver Cities, and Merle Wells is a famous Idaho historian. So, H.M. St. Cyr, I spent countless hours on this history, and... I'm still at a bit of a loss for this individual. So H.M. St. Cyr, sometimes called Henry or Harry, most likely born Hyacinth Michael St. Cyr. I found hundreds of pages of information about him. Like, honestly, about 150, 160 pages of articles referring to him. I don't even
0: think that, like, our most famous women have that much on them.
2: Right, right. And
0: (laughs) he, you know, he's one we, I've never even heard of him. And so, like, what?
2: <laughs> his crime is, like, the least story of his life. <laughs> oh, gosh. A lot of it seems like self-promotion. For instance, this article from Anaconda Standard in Anaconda, Montana, from August 7, 1916, titled, Pioneer Speed Fiend World Adventurer Captain St. Steer Visits Butte Has Many Races With Death a diamond hunter and a revolutionist, is grandson of Napoleon's Marshal. Romance of the rail, glamour of the Cecil Rhodes diamond fields in South Africa, powder scars from Peruvian revolution, and even adventures with Coxey's army are not titles of a modern Arabian knight's entertainment, but actual chapters in the life of Captain H.M. St. Cyr, the most reckless daredevil engineer that ever pulled a throttle. End quote. Right? Oh, my gosh. Just hold on. I have a lot of questions. So, in his obituary in 1937, it was reported by his wife that he was born on April 14th, 1850, in Wisconsin to French parents. On his intake form, it states that he was born in France on May 16th, 1843, which is about where this Anaconda Standard article would also place him. In the 1900 census, he listed his birthday in France as May 1847. In the 1920 census, he listed 1848 as his birth year in France. In a biography written about him in the Locomotive Engineers Journal from 1924, it stated he was born on March 29, 1849 in Marseille, France. This was published when he was actually still alive, so it may be the closest thing to the truth. A lot of his story is so difficult to pin down, but there are a lot of tall tales surrounding him, as we will continue to see. According to his obituary, he came from a noble French family notable in French history. His grandfather, according to one account, was General Laurent Gouvian Saint-Cyr of Toul, France. Laurent Gouvion was actually born to very humble beginnings, and after the French Revolution ended in 1794, he actually joined the army as a private, and as Napoleon rose in power and prominence from Major General in 1795 to Emperor in 1804, so did Gouvion Saint-Cyr. Who rose through the ranks to lead armies quote, on the Rhine, in Italy, and Portugal, as well as the 10th Army Corps of the Grand Army that invaded Russia in 1812, and was created Marshal of France by the First Napoleon for his victory over the Russians. End quote. When Napoleon abdicated the throne in 1814, and the Bourbons under King Louis the 18th returned to power, Gouvion-Saint-Cyr was instated as Minister of War, Minister of State, Minister of Marine, Peer of France, and dubbed a Count in 1817 and Marquis in 1819. So by all accounts, he was extremely stoic and humble, he was incorruptible, and in most of his letters he rarely distinguishes his accomplishments and abilities. Now, this would be completely different to his supposed grandson. Gouvion had a single son who inherited many of these noble titles. But I don't know if this is truly Hyacinth's lineage, but it, it makes a, a pretty good story that he would weave throughout his whole life. Mm-hmm. And in that same Anaconda Standard article that I mentioned above, it states that the son of Marshal St. Cyr came to the United States to become a Texas Ranger around the time of the Battle of the Alamo, which is march 6th 1836 so this marshal of napoleon has a son and that son decides even though he's got all these noble titles to become a a texas ranger of all things and that is where Hmm. (laughs) h.m sancier arrives in the united states and i uh, i don't know okay
0: (laughs) i mean to be fair i mean there's a lot going on all over the world at that time i mean a lot of, of nations are transitioning to and from democracies and that's sort of the the end of like the like essentially what is a world revolutionary era. Maybe just he wanted to see something besides France going and, and being a Texas Ranger in the 1830s is gonna <laughs> just be a very different experience.
2: It totally would yeah but the the weird thing is, H.M. actually stated that he immigrated to the United States in 1858. Ah. So according to his obituary, he was born in Wisconsin. So I'm like, uh, he weaves a lot of tales here. A survey company with access to locomotive engineer magazine archives from 1924 noted that H.M. immigrated to the United States in 1854. So not 58 like H.M. said.
0: I wish we lived in a time we could just make up our lives like this. Who would ever know? No one would ever know.
2: That is my final, like after countless hours of researching this fellow, that's, that is the final outcome. You could create your American experience. Like you can create anything back in these times. And Mm. he did it so well, so convincingly. The locomotive engineer magazine article about him stated that his father was an engineer on the Mississippi River, and the Great Lakes, and his obituary stated that uh, he, was, he was brought up in Texas, and from that state, he received an appointment to attend the United States Military Academy in West Point in New York. He graduated from the academy as a civil and mining engineer and received the title of Captain of Brevet, which is when you are appointed a new title as a reward for brave, gallant, or meritorious conduct. And it's basically an honorary title and not really, you don't really get a race position and you often don't get a pay raise. You just are called a captain sort of thing. I couldn't find any documentation to support this, nor to show that he was actually educated at West Point. There is actually a catalog of West Point graduates on this website where this, this researcher is basically trying to find every person who's graduated from West Point since the beginning. And I went through like every day, year looking for Saint-Cyr, and I cannot find him anywhere. But maybe it's just someone he has not come across yet, and that might be a new page on this website. Regardless, according to newspaper clippings in the early 1900s, he was Captain Hyacinth Michael Saint-Cyr, and he traveled west to begin a career in the railroad business. Even H.M.'s own account's on the stand during his trial in 1903 had some questionable accounts of his own life. He stated that in 1870, he was engaged as a U.S. Marshal in Texas chasing cattle wrestlers. I could not find any documentation about this, and in July 1911, the El Paso Herald actually questioned these claims after biographies of his life spread upon his release from the Idaho State Penitentiary. Quote, No one in El Paso who was here in the early days could be found who knows Captain Saint Cyr. Joseph McGoffin, one of the oldest residents in El Paso, who was active in the affairs of the city in the early days, says that he never heard of a man named Saint Cyr in El Paso. Judge F.E. Hunter says he has never heard of Captain St. Cyr or found anything in the records of the Pioneers Association, of which he is secretary, identifying such a person with the early history of El Paso. W.R. Martin, superintendent of the Union Station and one of the Pioneer Railroad officials of the Southwest, says he never heard of a man by that name. Mr. Martin was chief dispatcher, superintendent of the El Paso Division, and knew all the old-time engineers personally. End quote. The newspaper went down on a list of these old-timers in Texas, none of whom knew H.M. Digging further into the name Saint-Cyr in historic Texas newspaper, I did find that there was one Frenchman in Galveston off the Gulf Coast of Texas named M. Henry de Saint-Cyr, who was a French consul during the early days of the Republic of Texas who imported wines and goods from France and ran a business and helped fund and develop bridges and roads in Texas. And he actually died after returning to France in 1879 and is the only Sancier that I've been able to find that may be the connection to RHM HM Sancier There was no indication that he was a Texas Ranger or anything along those lines. And I went down a a bit of a rabbit hole, uh, surprise, surprise, and found that France actually has quite a long history in the Texas Gulf with trade and development. So, you know, there could be documents in French in a French archive that I didn't have access to for this.
0: Uh, Probably all down here in Texas. I can tell you that there's someone in my cohort who studies a Native American tribe in the Gulf Coast. And, I mean, the French and the Spanish are all over down here so absolutely if anyone's in texas and wants to check it out i'm sure there's plenty of stuff
2: oh that would be amazing yeah so hm st cyr also stated that he fought native americans at moosehead lake in minnesota and again i couldn't find anything to corroborate this now one certainty is that hm met a girl named elmira leona graft and she was born in pittsburgh pennsylvania on september 1st 1850 she went by Myra, and according to Myra, on her 16th birthday in 1866, H.M. gave her a sterling silver set of salt and pepper shakers. H.M. married her six years later in New York in 1873. Or possibly, according to her testimony later on, in Hinckley, Minnesota in 1872. So, again, this gives me good indication that it was pretty, probably soon after his supposed graduation from West Point. The two would spend the rest of their lives together, traveling the country, working in the railroad and mining industries, and sharing a passion for oil painting and crafts. During the last quarter of the 19th century, H.M. used his engineering background to help with the development of railroads out west. After surveying grounds for construction of the Northern Pacific Railroad, H.M. got a job as a conductor for a short line. In just under two years, he got his own train and began a career as a train engineer. According to his wife, he was appointed by General Grant to help survey and establish the Idaho-Montana boundary line. Again, this was not documented in any records I could find. From 1889 to 1894, H.M. ran a train in La Grande, Oregon. And according to several write-ups in the 19 H.M. was renowned for his daredevil antics and close calls. In 1892, a train dispatcher in Camela, Oregon, northwest of Le Grand, made a mistake by letting a passenger train take off on the same track the train was coming in on, which is called a lap order. It was over a 12-mile stretch through the mountains with no way to communicate with either train. They would have crashed and tumbled down the side of the mountain. The dispatcher, seeing his mistake, actually ran to the train yard and began asking engineers to rush out and stop the last train he had let go. And these two engineers were like, nope, no way, not doing it. But Sancir, who had actually just finished oiling his train, agreed. He reportedly said, quote, if you don't hear from me again in 30 minutes, just send the wrecker and the coroner, end quote
0: did you just attempt a french accent there i thought about it as i was starting (laughs) to say it and i was like nope i'm gonna embarrass myself (laughs) i love it
2: he tore down the track going 90 miles an hour with his engine quote he whistled and whistled until the canyon walls took up the cry of pursuit and stopped the seemingly doomed trains within 50 feet of each other end quote again This sounds like a momentous thing that would have been documented, but I could not find anything to document this. In one train story, HM was on the South Pacific Railway in Mexico on a trestle 70 feet in the air going 50 miles an hour when a special train actually crashed and tumbled off the tracks. HM survived with a few broken bones. A fireman was killed and the operator who made the error to allow the collision committed suicide. I didn't find any articles about this event occurring. In 1893, a newspaper article appeared in the Dahl's Daily Chronicle from the Dahl's Oregon in March titled, Throttled and Cab, Saint the Champion Liar, Conductor Haslam's Bravery. And in it, the journalist notes a story where H.M. told them that back in 1882, he was on the police force in San Francisco and, quote, I was walking up Market Street about 8 o'clock in the evening, while well, all at once I heard a deep rumbling noise like distant thunder. The ground trembled and swayed under my feet so violently that I was unable to take a step. The first shock was closely followed by a succession of others, and for just 15 minutes I stood in one spot, unable to move out of my track. I couldn't even fall. When the earth made a lurch in the other direction, I stood upright again. End quote. He then said that... The tide actually moved out, and every ship in the harbor was on land the next day. And with that, San Francisco grew by several hundreds of acres of oceanfront property overnight. The author of the article ended with H.M. saying, quote, And that wasn't all, continued the champion storyteller, as he made a rush to lock the door. But he was too late. His auditors had all escaped, leaving him alone to meditate on the future destiny of liars, end quote. (laughs) <laughs> like, this guy just weaves stories, and I think it's it's how everybody kind of saw him. He was a suave storyteller. He liked to exaggerate, and he actually got the nickname amongst other train men as Hair Oil Pete. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of my searching is literally just for Hair Oil Pete and your missus on his train.
0: I don't know why. This reminds me of A um, Brother or Arthur where he's like— he he's all obsessed with his like hair pomade right and he's yeah and he's like someone's like well we don't have dabber dan we have Fop, and he's like i don't want Fop, i want dabber dan i'm a dabber dan man i hope that's what he (laughs) was like
2: (laughs) totally yeah yeah so i i even dug into like looking at the earthquake records for san francisco for the spring of 1882 and there were a couple of like these really small earthquakes throughout the mornings the days that spring that lasted seconds but none that lasted 15 minutes and like grounded all of these boats so tall tales and i did not find him as a police officer working in san francisco so again i would have i would have seen like officer st cyr or officer sear any any number of things Mm -hmm. like that
0: Mm -hmm.
2: nothing now if you remember from last season, I spoke about Coxey's Rebellion in 1894 when the out-of-work men began boarding trains to head to Washington during the United States' worst economic depression to that point. And all these train conductors, their trains were being overrun by these hobos and tramps who were heading to Washington to give the politicians the what for and all this. Well. Train conductor H.M. St. Cyr apparently was, quote, the only engineer in the West who prevented the swarm of hobos from capturing the engine of the train on which they rode. This he did with a big Winchester rifle, end quote. It was then reported that Governor Frank Stunenberg ordered troops to be sent to Huntington, Oregon to prevent the Coxies from taking the depot there. And H.M., of course, was the engineer that sped there with them, taking a record 146 minutes to get there. And... It kind of ends with this quote. In fact, so noted did he become for the daredevil manner of travel that it became almost impossible to induce the fireman or a brakeman to make a run with him. End quote. Like they were all too afraid to ride with him. He was such a maniac. And, of course, I looked for any notes about Governor Stunenberg ordering troops to Huntington. Surprise, I couldn't find any documentation about this maybe maybe it this is just beyond my research capabilities but i could not find anything to document anything other than that he was a trained engineer and often seen
0: as a liar <laughs> so he's kind of trying to make himself into this like forest gum figure of like oh that historic thing i was there oh that historic thing i was there by
2: 1895 he's established himself at now as a renowned mining engineer So he was in Yakima, Washington, altering a mining tool, 5-foot by 10-foot box that gently rocked back and forth called the Gold Bug Chief. And it was powered by a wheel in the water. The Gold Bug Chief could sort one ton of material per hour, running the material through a padded burlap that rubbed against a copper plate with a mixture of metals and texture that dropped part of the material into a bed of quicksilver. It was patented by a man aptly named W.H. Rockefeller, And H.M. reportedly figured out ways to improve on it, which he wrote about all over in the newspaper and was selling these things. In 1896, as H.M.'s reputation as a mining engineer spread, he was sent all around the northwest to examine mining grounds. He examined the Blackfoot Mining District, saying, quote, It is simply wonderful, and that one dollar invested there will bring greater returns than five put in Trail Creek, end quote. This ramped up stock investment in the company there, and I found that H.M. had considerable influence in which mining companies were successful, and I think it was about this time that he started to realize the value of newspaper write-ups swaying public opinion. Because all these exaggerated stories I've been telling you about were all written in like the 19 aughts, like 1911, 1912, referring to these events that occurred in 1882, 1890. During the last periods of the 1800s, this is like that period of the yellow journalism where basically sensationalism, exaggeration is at its height. And HM got into this business with a lot of these mine owners. So this fellow named Robert Wilson discovered some placer mines in Long Valley, in Boise County. And they filed articles of incorporation with Secretary of State for the Bay City Mining Company. And HM spoke to a journalist with the Idaho Statesman that, quote, There was a tract of placer land controlled by the company embracing about 12 square miles. This ground has long been known to be valuable, but it has remained undeveloped all these years because no plan for getting water upon it has been devised until this company took hold. The value of the ground cannot be definitely ascertained until it is worked, but enough is known of it to prove that it will pay well. The gold is near the surface, having been deposited in glacial drift." End quote. And at the end of the article, H.M. stated, quote, "He had been in all the mining sections of the world, but he had never found any other section that, in his opinion, equaled the state of Idaho in mining opportunities." End quote. Now, H.M. had 15 men working on this land, and I found several articles detailing his extensive traveling, meeting in the spring of 1899 with the United Copper Company in New York, where he purchased a $7,000 diamond drill, quote, to be used in prospecting, thus doing away with the more tedious and expensive work of shafts, tunnels, etc., end quote. And he supposedly went to South Africa and worked in the Cecil J. Rhodes diamond fields around this time. He later noted that he got out of the business with Rhodes because he didn't want to be involved in the Boer War. That was a fight between the British Empire and the South Africans, and as an American citizen, he didn't need to be involved, so he came back to the United States. Again, I couldn't find any manifests. I couldn't find any documentation, any newspapers of him being in South Africa during this time. He started another firm, called the Saint-Cyr and Walton Company, and during the summer of 1899, he was appointed as a deputy mineral surveyor in Idaho. He listed Weezer, Idaho, as his residence. In the 1900 census, he listed his occupation as civil engineer minor, listed his birth date as May 1847 in France, and had married Elmira L. Saint-Cyr in 1873. The couple had a 16-year-old servant girl named Mabel. In the 1900 city directory, he listed his residence as a home on the southeast corner of Ada and 17th Street here in Boise, and he became the manager of the What Cheer Group of Mines in the Rothberg district around Midvale, north of Weezer. He was in charge of a 150-foot tunnel that was being dug at that claim. So he had his fingers in all kinds of different mining companies at this point. Now, during the late summer of 1900, the Atlanta Group of Mines was purchased by a man named J.C. Johnston, which was a bit of a shock to Deputy United States Mineral Surveyor H.M. Sansier, who congratulated the judge. He sent him a private letter, and here you get an idea of what his job entailed. Quote, I think I stated to you, that I had been intimately acquainted with it for 20 years, that I had explored thousands of feet of its underground workings and traveled miles upon its surface, and that I considered it second to none in the world, end quote. In this private letter, which was later printed in the newspaper, he valued it to above $300 million, the Atlanta group mines. Quote, this is given to you ex-officially and for your own benefit in order that you will not be undervaluing your purchase and have been candid with me in the details of your enterprise, end quote. And he hands the, this this letter saying, quote, if my humble services can be of any aid to you in your vast enterprise, command me and I will serve you, end quote. This seems to be the primary objective here, the secondary objective to help J.C. Johnson's company find investors because, as I said, this was a private letter written to this investor that was printed widely in newspapers. Once <laughs> once oh, you know it, in February 1901, several massive advertisements to invest in the Golden Age Mining Company in Atlanta were produced, and H.M. wrote testimonials stating that it would be one of the greatest producers of gold and silver in the Northwest. Investors came far and wide and spread these requests for more investors. In March 1901, an article was written that began to question the reputation of the mine owner and HM, asking, quote, Is it safe to invest money in this scheme? By the caption thereof, Rather questionable. End quote. And they noted that $4 million had been taken from the ground already. But due to mismanagement of the grounds and the fact that the Golden Age Company had taken out a temporary bond from the previous company, meaning that if they didn't get enough investors, all the stockholders would simply lose their money. Ooh, bad plan. The Golden Age Company wouldn't owe them a dime. So, quote, stocking a property that is merely held temporarily under bond and to which no title has been acquired is rather obsolete in mining operations at this day anyway and men of experience are very slow to invest on such a basis. This particular company does not yet appear to have sold enough stock to pay its Idaho bills, much less pay for the mind, The article actually continues by questioning H.M. Cyr, who they list with the quotation marks around the word expert behind his name. They say that he is, well-known in this part of Idaho, being a gentleman much given to the long-legged hip boots, such as the cavaliers wear in the plays, and a Mexican dress. He's a prolific gentleman in a geological treatise on the features of anything one can scare up under the guise of a mine, and appears to take great pleasure in imparting his knowledge through the prints to the general public. He was at one time a member of the firm of Saint-Cyr and Walton, the mining brokers who ignominiously collapsed leaving several creditors to mourn over the assets. J.C. Johnston, president of the company, is running a large advertisement in the Davenport Times and possibly Chicago Papers, and further inquiries are not unlikely. St. Cyr's name is no small part of the advertisement." End quote. Well, It turned out to be the case. In May of 1902, the owner, J.C. Johnston, found himself in a Nebraska jail for selling fraudulent mining stock to a Nebraska man. Apparently, an investor had discovered that the claim had been what they call salted, where gold is basically scattered amongst the ore to raise the price that they they think would, would be there. And this meant that they were overvaluing what was actually in the mines to sell stock to pay for their bond. So Johnston was never charged, though. It was a big story that this mining president was arrested in Pennsylvania and taken to Nebraska. And the only blip I could find about the trial was in the Lincoln Daily Post two weeks later after Johnston was bound over to the district court in June, which basically stated that it was dismissed for a lack of prosecution. So I don't know if it was settled out of court or if the apparent victim was intimidated from continuing to press charges. That was literally the end of that trial as far as I could find. H.M. wouldn't be involved with mining companies for long after this. His name appeared closely with a prisoner that I will definitely cover in a future episode named George Levi, who was convicted for a sensational murder in downtown Boise. Levi was a Frenchman, like H.M., and they were known to be acquaintances. During the trial in the spring of 1902, H.M. revealed that he had met up with George Levi in Baker City, Oregon, and the two had a drink in a saloon where George revealed that he was suspected of killing a fella named Davis Levi, and they had no relation. Soon after that, H.M. heard the news from others, and during the trial several people commented on Captain H.M. St. Cyr's reputation, A witness named W.D. Lovejoy was brought up to the stand and asked, what is his reputation for truth and veracity in reference to H.M.? And he said, it is bad. Sheriff James Gray of Washington County was asked the same question. He also testified that H.M.'s reputation was bad. Finally, a judge named J.H. Richards testified that he knew H.M. for two years in Washington County and considered his reputation bad. H.M. St. Cyr wasn't on trial, but his reputation was, and his involvement in George Levi's case made his reputation known far and wide. He was a pretty well-known liar and cheater. Around the time of the trial, mining claims were being surveyed at Thunder Mountain in central Idaho, about 70 miles east of McCall. An article written by Ron Marlow on the website info stated that the name came from the sound as a creek ran through an underground cave within the mountain of Thunder Mountain that created this constant thunderous roar that reverberated from the mountain. And the water was later rerouted, so it's, it doesn't make that roar anymore. Now, mining fever had somewhat died down in the late 1890s as it seemed Most of the major veins of gold and silver and and valuable goods had been discovered and claimed in Idaho. By all official scientific accounts, this remote spot at Thunder Mountain was going to be the biggest and greatest collection of gold in the world. Deputy Mineral Surveyor H.M. St. Cyr visited in the spring of 1902 and endorsed the report made by Professor E.H. Mead, a chemist and mining expert who claimed an extreme amount of riches in the area. Now, miners from all over the country flocked to this area, and it was perfect timing for the St. Sears to invest in a hotel in one of the stops on the way. Now, Elmira St. Sear and a man named Harry Archie Emmons developed a hotel near Payette Lake in what was then called Lardo, now part of McCall, Idaho. They called it Lardo Hotel, Payette Lake Resort. A telephone was being installed that year in the area just in time for summer travelers and miners who would pass through the area on their way to Thunder Mountain. The Weezer Signal noted in an article about the hotel in 1901 that, quote, No doubt its nearness to Thunder Mountain will make it somewhat a headquarters for those who wish to be as near the camp as possible without getting out of touch with civilization, end quote. This, of course, referring to the miners that are flocking to the area. In the advertisement for the hotel, the hotel provided, quote, new and first-class appointments, good cooking and services, steamboat, driving rigs, saddle horses, and rowboats for guests, best fishing and hunting in the West, we'll meet guests at Council or Meadows if notified by letter, end quote. Now, according to Frank P. Rowland, who wrote Founding of McCall, Idaho from 1960, the town of Lardo actually got its name from a wagon containing dough and lard that overturned and they mixed together, thus making lardo. Just across from the historic Shore Lodge, uh, where a mural actually once was painted of this great lard and dough mishap, is a restaurant of this name that I used to frequent when I played piano there uh, for Sunday brunch at at Shore Lodge. So definitely check out Lardo's when you're in town. Uh, What happened next occurred right near the powerhouse by Shore Lodge. So this Uh, Lardo Hotel was kind of right around this area of Shore Lodge. Now, in the final days of May 1903, Elmira and Harry Emmons decided to dissolve their partnership in the hotel. It seemed Thunder Mountain was actually a bit of a bust. It was difficult to get supplies to that camp, and not as many miners were flocking to the area as hoped for. According to Elmira, she, quote, "...furnished all the money for the hotel, saloon, and livery business," while Harry ran the business and received one half of the net profits, end quote. According to Elmira, she was not receiving any money back, as Harry seemed to be paying the bills and taking leftover money for himself. Quote, she thought Emmons took about $2,000 of the company money, end quote. They sat down to dissolve the business and had everything sorted out, except for a team of two horses. On June 1st, Harry Emmons, and the St. Sears sat down to dinner to discuss the settlement. H.M. wanted to settle everything out of court, but Harry insisted that the team of horses was his. He reportedly told H.M., Harry, by God, I'm going to send the sheriff after the team. Then I'll settle with you, and it will be the last settlement you will ever make. H.M. responded, I'll meet you halfway on any proposition. End quote. Elmira believed that they were rightfully her horses, but Harry claimed them. So H.M. told Harry that if he wanted the horses not to come on to their property, but to send the sheriff instead. Soon after this meeting on June 1st, Harry went to the sheriff and told him what H.M. had said and asked for a favor, but then changed his mind and told the sheriff he would take the team of horses himself. On June 3rd, 1903, he headed to the St. Cyr home to take the horses. At around 4 p.m., while H.M. was fixing a fence for his chickens, Elmira was inside the house preparing dinner. Harry entered H.M.'s barn and collected the horses in a wagon. He's pulling out onto the road when H.M. spotted him. The two had words, and H.M. ran into his house and grabbed his rifle. He fired at Harry. The bullet pierced his chin and passed through the back of his right ear. Harry fell from the wagon, landing face first on a pile of logs. H.M. ran over, pulled his body onto the dirt, and pulled out his revolver. He pointed it into the back of Harry's head and fired another bullet through his brain. (sighs) Authorities noted the powder burns on the back of Harry Emmons' head, revealing that wound was made at point-blank range. Mm -hmm. H.M. went west of McCall to Meadows, chatted with people, and stopped at his saloon. and finally turned himself in to Deputy Sheriff Enoch Smith, claiming self-defense. H.M. stated that he was away from the house and returned to find that Harry Emmons was taking his horses. As he confronted him, Harry apparently pulled out a gun and began firing at H.M. A total of three shots, which left holes in a shed outside H.M.'s home, along with visible powder marks. H.M. ran inside his house to get his gun, but it was missing. H.M. alleged that Harriet had stolen his gun and was firing his own gun at him. H.M. then went around to a tent and got the rifle and killed Harry with it. Authorities couldn't find any evidence to support this story. Harry Emmons was so well-liked that H.M. feared he might be lynched by the people in the area. H.M. said that Harry had fired at him three times before he could even shoot. He was taken to jail in Weezer. The only witnesses were Elmira and a servant girl named Helia Koski from Finland who could not speak very much English. Immediately after the shooting, she ran to a neighbor's house and, quote, fell against the door. She talked excitedly, but he could not understand anything she said excepting when she spoke St. Cyr's name, end quote. An article from Salt Lake Telegram described the two men as such, quote, Emmons was regarded as quiet, peaceable man, while St. Cyr was extremely quarrelsome and would draw a knife or gun on the slightest pretext, quote. An article from the Idaho County Free Press in Grangeville noted, quote, St. Cyr will be remembered by many of our people as he spent some time here during the Thunder Mountain boom and made himself conspicuous by his eccentric dress and bombastic manners. He was then posing as a representative of a big Eastern mining syndicate and claimed to have the biggest thing on earth. And by that, I do think that they're referring to his manhood. I, like, <laughs> <I, laughs> claim to right. have the biggest wow. thing on earth. That's, right.
0: Uh, it's a funny thing to include in, <laughs> like, um, is it is a testimony?
2: these are just newspapers talking that's about his character even yeah.
0: weirder it's a weird it's i <laughs> i'm at a loss for words so it feels it just is like one of those things where it's like even if you know that information you can just keep it to yourself like no <laughs> one no one needs to know that
2: i think it just goes to his character of just this storyteller who like you know <laughs> he's got the biggest thing in the world amongst every other feature that he has that's amazing like and he would and,
0: know that come right. on Oh, gross.
2: Oh, anyway, HM was taken to Idaho city to be tried and a total of 75 witnesses were subpoenaed by the defense and prosecution. The trial began on November 17th, 1903. James H. Hawley was counsel for the defense who opened with a statement along HM story that Harry entered his house and stole his gun and HM was defending himself and his property. Now, this may shock you, but James Hawley was actually the mayor of Boise at this time. And he served in this position from 1903 to 1905 and was later elected governor of Idaho, serving between 1911 and 1913. That's kind of a a big name to have on your defense. And there was a ballistics test using the same model of revolver on a piece of wood fired at different distances. And it was noted that the shots fired from one and one and a half feet from the board left burn marks, these powder marks that I mentioned earlier, but everything beyond two feet left no powder marks, which the prosecution used to prove that H.M. most likely fired the three bullets into the shed himself, not Harry Emmons. Like, he walked up after killing Emmons and had to cover his tracks and shot at point-blank range at this shed, making it look like Harry shot at him. There's a lot of talk during the trial on Harry Emmons' handedness. Some said that he was left-handed, which would prove that he was firing at H.M. with his left hand while holding the horse reins with his right hand. Others stated that they actually saw him sign forms with his right hand. So all these witnesses coming in just to testify on his handedness, which is just wild. Uh, Another strange turn occurred when Elmira actually produced a will, apparently written by Harry Emmons, bequeathing all of his possessions to Elmira St. Cyr at the time of his death. Yeah, and it came with a letter which described the reason as, quote, because he had treated her so badly, end quote. Authorities reading the will and checking the document declared that it had been forged, and several of what? them. What?
0: What do you mean? It that doesn't make any sense?
2: <laughs> Cause he felt bad, he gave all of his things to me anyway.
0: He was so mean to me that he just decided to turn all of his possessions to me when he died.
2: Before trying to kill my husband and then getting killed because my husband was defending himself, I yeah, yes. Several of Emmons' business partners, like, analyzed the handwriting, and they declared that it was definitely not his. Now, the most damning witness was actually Helia Koski, who had been in the house and never saw Harry Emmons enter the house, nor fire at H.M. Her testimony, gathered through a translator, sealed H.M.'s fate. Elmira actually brought in this vest and shirt that H.M. was apparently wearing that day which had bullet holes in it somehow the bullets had ripped through the vest near the third button but they didn't strike HM and he put it on and it was really tight to his form which he explained was due to him gaining 20 pounds while in jail and apparently this was actually accurate because they interviewed the sheriff and he's, he he de- did testify that HM had gained about 15 to 20 pounds in the the weeks between the crime and his trial hmm. But H.M. appeared quite surprised to see the holes when they were brought out by Elmira as well, only hearing about them from his wife a few days before the trial. He said he was only surprised because he didn't realize that those bullets that had gone into the shed behind him had actually pierced his vest. A woman who did their laundry took to the stand and stated that she did not recall seeing any holes in the shirt or producing the holes in them herself. So when HM took the stand, he shared this dramatic story of of these bullets ripping through and his vest must have been open and that's why it went through his vest but didn't strike him. He actually ultimately took the stand himself and he talked about being brought up from France at the age of 4 and being brought to the United States at the age of 4 and serving as a lieutenant in the American Army, serving as a U.S. Marshal in Texas, which led him to killing an outlaw, serving as a mining, mechanical, locomotive engineer, a surveyor, a businessman, and now a man pleading with the jury to see that this was done in self-defense. And the jury was sent out to deliberate the day before Thanksgiving. After 13 hours of deliberation, a verdict was reached on Thanksgiving Day, November 26, 1903. The jurors agreed that H.M. Sancier was guilty, but it took four ballots for them to decide which charge of murder. There's one juror who held out until the fourth ballot on murder in the second degree, while the rest voted for manslaughter each time. Jurors were condemned on the streets for this conviction, and one statement of the Idaho statesman said, quote, that all but two of the jury should be taken out and hanged, end quote. Everybody thought that he should have been convicted of murder at least in the second degree, at the very least, but he got manslaughter. Now, members of the jury actually explained that they believed that Harry Emmons had fired the first shot at H.M. and they would have accepted his self-defense plea if he had just remained in his house in safety instead of finding his rifle and then firing back at Harry. This seems to be pretty reasonable, I think, of the jury. A judge actually felt this was a disappointing charge by the jury as well. It should have been a higher degree of murder. He sentenced H.M. to the maximum for manslaughter 10 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. H.M. feared lynching. Quote, St. Cyr is the most cold blooded, heartless, and cowardly brute that ever went unhung. Arguments in justification of the verdict would make a monkey blush. He is as low and degraded a wretch as God ever permitted to bl- pollute the earth with his slimy snake-like presence, quote. <laughs> In an Idaho Statesman article, there was a discussion that, quote, justice has been spurned as if it were a thing loathed and despised, and a blot placed on the good name of Boise County that can never be wiped out. That is not all, This verdict has caused the feeling that justice cannot be obtained through juries, that the rendering of such verdict as a public announcement that life is not held sacred and therefore is not safe from the assassin's bullet or knife. Murderers will have less fear of the law and will slay their victims because of disputes over the merest trifles and will feel safe, end quote. So, like, this was a big story. This guy, he should have been hung he should have been you know, all these things but HM <laughs> has an easy go of his incarceration meanwhile Elmira actually just held on to the hotel and she just kept working it and running it and earning money to pay for attorneys and other legal fees so his intake HM St. Cyr number 958 received November 28th 1903 from Boise County Crime, manslaughter, sentence, 10 years, age when received, 61, born May 16th, 1843. Born in France, his legitimate occupation was engineer and had served in an apprenticeship. His height, he was five feet, five and three quarters inches tall. His complexion was brunette which is legitimately what it says. Weight, 175 pounds, color of hair, black, color of eyes, brown, married with no children, His father died when he was 50 years old, and his mother died when he was 20 years old. He left home at the age of 23. He had religious instruction in the Catholic Church and attended Sunday school, but was not a member of a church. He had attended school for 14 years. He was a moderate drinker. He had been imprisoned in the county jail in Boise County. His nearest relative was Miss H.M. St. Cyr in the state house via Meadows, Idaho. Peculiarity in build and features included a quote, ball joint gone from left foot, limps slightly, end quote. Condition of teeth was fine. He had a black mustache, and he wore a lady's six-size boot. I thought it was funny that they noted it was a lady's six. He had the following <laughs> items on him when he was incarcerated. A ring, a Canadian penny, fourteen thirty in cash, which is about over $400 in today's money, a razor, a knife, open-faced watch, which was made of silver with number 656156 Hamden Watch Company, Ohio, case number 6965. I just thought it's so interesting that they kept such intense details about his type of watch and the exact numbers on it. A cloak, a suit of clothes, and a sack containing underwear and artwork. His Bertillion showed a vaccination mark on his right inner arm, scars near his inner thighs on both legs, a scar on his foot, and a missing second toe next to his big toe. He had a scar on his right shoulder blade and the back of his right knee and a large mole on his back. Now, H.M. was taken to the 1890 cell house. And while incarcerated, his engineering background was used to actually improve the grounds, reportedly working in the heating plant and working on the plumbing systems. He cataloged and worked at the prison library and spent his time painting landscapes. He was wealthy and wore silk underwear and silken hose that his wife sent him under his prison stripes. And there were no regulations on hats that could be worn in the prison, so Elmira supplied him with, quote, a peculiar Stetson hat made to order for him at New York, end quote. (laughs) And actually, interestingly, according to one article, quote, he was not forced to wear stripes or to undergo the usual procedure in clipping off the hair, end quote. Of the 167 prisoners listed in the 1903 and 1904 wardens by report, he was the only prisoner listed with a collegiate education. Eight men listed high school, 130 listed common school, and 28 listed no school at all. He was a member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and of the Masonic Lodge at La Grande, Oregon, whom he kept in contact with during his stay. This letter in his file from September 14, 1904, might have all of the information to track his history down. And I literally started all of my research with this and still struck out. And it's from New Canada, Minnesota, from M.E. Loiselle, nee St. Cyr, asking, quote, Dear sir, will you kindly inform me if you have an inmate of your institution by the name of H.M. St. Cyr, also for what time he is to remain there and why was he sent there, End quote. And New Canada is actually just outside of St. Paul, And there are two towns there called Maplewood and Little Canada. Maplewood had the Gladstone New Canada town hall, which makes me think it's it's probably more from that area. Anyway, I couldn't find any more information about any St. Sears living in that area. Hmm. But I feel like if I could, it may unlock his true identity. Ah, it drives (laughs) me insane. So if there are any listeners from Minnesota, from this area, from the St. Paul area, if you can dig through the archives and find an H.M. St. Cyr, and if any of this is true, it would just, oh, it'd make me so happy. <laughs> In a 1906 newspaper article, there are these notes that are seemingly about the history of the ORN engine, the, the railroad engine number 134. But in fact, it's mostly about H.M. St. Cyr, who was, quote, hero and murderer. St. Cyr, now a prisoner in Boise, once saved many lives by his heroism, end quote. And this is basically where I got this uh, story of him stopping the trains within 50 feet of each other that I told you about earlier. That was his engine. And of course, they they were just happened to be writing the story about this engine and his his connection to it. Now, while he was incarcerated, Elmira actually visited Boise, as she's noted as a guest in several Boise hotels regularly. And she and H.M. would have met in the warden's office here in the administration building for visitation. And while running the hotel in Lardo, she actually had a number of close calls. In early September 1905, a forest fire ripped through the area and destroyed several homes and businesses. And according to the statesman, her hotel narrowly escaped destruction. But a large amount of valuable timber around the land was destroyed. Elmira would narrowly escape another fire later in her life, and we will get to that in a moment. In mid June 1907, Elmira and an 11 year old girl named Grace Phelan were out on Payette Lake in a wooden boat when Elmira got too close to where the lake runs off into the Payette River. The boat got nudged into the stream. And Elmira, thinking quickly, actually hoisted this girl up to hold onto this bridge as they were passing under. And while lifting the child, fell out of the boat. Men in the post office, they uh, heard her cries and ran and helped hoist the little girl from the bridge and then jumped in and saved Elmira and the boat. And she was rescued. Nobody had a scratch on them. Now, HM was released on parole on February 10, 1910, after serving just over six years. The deputy warden noted that he was a picturesque figure, a man of refinement, and a newspaper article about his release described him as, quote, an artist of rare ability and painted some excellent pictures in prison. End quote. Two weeks later, on February 28, 1910, he was given his final discharge with the expiration of his sentence. H.M. was released to a new job in Twin Falls, and I couldn't find the company, but it seemed he quickly bounced back into the mining and railroad engineering industry. By 1912, he was working as a civil engineer in Alberta, Canada, and he wrote a letter to his companions in the Brotherhood Locomotive Engineers in La Grande that they published in the newspaper. This huge letter, several pages long, about the beauties of Canada and where he's working, and it... It's literally like him painting this landscape with words. For instance, quote, "...pea vine that grows so dense that it's actually impossible to walk through it, and when a man on a pony is 100 yards away, you cannot see him." End quote. He describes British Columbia as like the Washington of Canada. Quote, "...its rugged beauty can only be compared with portions of South America, Central Peru, Bolivia, and the Pacific side of Ecuador." The wonderful waterways, the glaciers, the cloud-kissed mountains, peaks, and rock-walled lakes are scenes that hang like a beautiful picture forever on memory's walls. When one parts from these scenic places, it is like leaving an old friend or a cherished relative that you long to meet again, quote. He also talks about Woodrow Wilson, then Democratic candidate for president at the time, whom H.M. describes as a Faro Sharps and bunco man. Quote, Wilson can show them all what little principle remains in his hide would scarce decorate a child of infancy with character enough to flag it into hell he certainly needs cleaning inside and outside End quote. of course wilson would win that election and uh, would lead the country through world war one so in 1913 h.m was in new york and had a run-in with some criminals where basically he was held up uh, he said he was leaving this hotel with some friends and, and they were just just after dinner he was taking a friend back to his hotel and he noticed these guys kind of eyeing him but he's like no i'm a tough guy and when he came back he decided to walk back these guys clubbed him beat him knocked him out they dragged him into a an alleyway and stole his watch worth a hundred dollars and you know, he talks about, like, you know, I've been to all these uncivilized places with all these outlaws and savage miners, and there are more dangers in New York than in the jungle. In 1920, I found H.M. living in Bend, Oregon with Elmira, and in 1924, the Locomotive Engineer Journal, Volume 58, was published, which recounted many of the stories about H.M. with all the same undocumented claims that appear in the newspaper about 10 years prior. Then I found him living and working as a car repairman in Marshfield, Oregon, in 1936, the last frontier of his life. H.M. died on May 30th, 1937. His wife had collected newspaper clippings of his exploits throughout his life and gave them to a correspondent named Helen K. Gamwell of the World Newspaper in Coos Bay, Oregon. It begins, Few railroad men in the West during the latter part of the 19th and first part of the 20th century needed to ask, Who is H.M. St. Cyr? His story is closely linked with the romance and thrill of adventure, which was the lot of those who cast in their fortunes with the early builders of the railroad systems. Indeed, few men, even those who lived, as did St. Hyacinth Michael St. Cyr, to the ripe age of and seventy years, crowd into one lifetime as much adventure and accomplishments as did this man." End quote. And this obituary spans his entire life. And Elmira was working on compiling all these writings and clippings into a book. But unfortunately, before she could publish it, two years later, in October 1939, Elmira was woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of roaring flames tearing through her home. A fire had erupted in the St. Cyr home from defective wiring mementos of her husband's colorful life in this and foreign countries were lost as well as oil paintings done by both miss st cyr and her late husband the possibility of a memoir and more evidence to verify all this man's life were wiped out in that fire Mm. Uh ah so myra ended up moving to manhattan kansas where she had family mostly nephews and after spending about 12 years in that town, she had an early 100th birthday party on September 1st, 1949, for herself. And the newspaper described her, stating, Mrs. St. Cyr is a spry little woman, able to go downtown on shopping jobs by herself. In her room, she is always busy with handwork, End quote. Unfortunately, she wouldn't quite reach her 100th birthday. Elmira St. Cyr died February 2nd, 1950, at the age of 99 in a local hospital. So who was Hyacinth Michael St. Cyr, a traveling wild man of the West or a grifter cheat, lying hair oil Pete who understood how to manipulate the media and weave a good story? I have gone crazy trying to answer this question. And at the end of all this, I still don't know. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Hyacinth. Michael St. Cyr, or Henry, or Harry, or whoever he is, H.M. St. Cyr, and his brief incarceration at the Idaho State Penitentiary.
0: Well, maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle. You know, maybe he was both of those things.
2: You know, he was a conductor, he was a surveyor, but uh, he's so bombastic, I don't...
0: (laughs) I mean, there's nothing wrong with spicing up a dull life. I mean really, right. who was he hurting with the lies? I mean he definitely hurt someone. But but I mean really, who were you hurting when you were like I was a ranger, I was a Texas Ranger, I served at the Alamo, like eh, just makes you seem interesting. Maybe that's what I'll start doing.
2: <laughs> well I think I think we see it in our recent history, how the media can be manipulated in so many different ways. I think H.M., like back 100 years ago, he was doing the same thing. He realized how easy it was to spin a tale, and it's so hard for people who want honesty in the media and in newspapers and everything else, for them to go back and try to correct something that's already been printed. You know,
0: it's. Uh, I mean, it's a lesson to all of us that the media, the quote-unquote fake news, the whatever you want to call it. It's not... This is not a modern... Like, a new thing. Like, this... Exactly. Journalism and, you know, the media, even in its most simple form, has always been... It's about making money. And, like, sometimes the truth isn't interesting enough to make money. Like, that's... That's why we have such difficulty as historians. Like, oh, they claimed this outrageous thing. Or, like, this newspaper said this about this event. And, unfortunately the media is it's never been this like honest like whatever it is you want to think it was in the past it's always been this way just now we have more of it coming at us all at once so it seems like it's worse than it ever was but there's just more of it history man
2: (laughs) absolutely yeah history I'm losing I'm losing (laughs) my mind it's so fun
0: (laughs) oh gosh I one one inmate I think I studied her genealogy to try to figure out where she was connected for probably like 10 hours just researching this one episode so yeah it's uh it's a journey man
2: (laughs) for sure thank you (laughs) sorry for i spent so long on this one it's It's okay i I had to put everybody else through what i had to go through (laughs) digging through this guy's life so i get it oh all right everybody do your own time
0: do your own number
2: we'll talk to you soon
0: If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast, and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.